stanza for the activist music. I love that. Um, uh, all right, so moving on. Um, Costanza, would you like to do the honor? Yeah, of course. So we're going to be introducing Katie. Um, so Katie's well first in post-secondary education accommodation policy in the Maritime region. And she's a very strong advocate for students with disabilities and has represented the student voice in numerous organizations such as the Association of Atlantic Universities. Um, and my slides just went really tiny. Um, and the government of New Brunswick as well. And she's the director of engagement and equity at the students and S and the lead author on Disable the Label, Improving Post-Secondary Policy, Practice and Academic Culture for Students with Disabilities. So thank you so much, Katie, for, uh, for being here with us and for joining us and um, please take it away. Uh, just to be clear, I think uh, Brady's presentation, uh, if, if I'm understanding this correctly, may also be interwoven or at least uh, you, you're kind of doing this hand in hand. So um, Brady, uh, very quickly, Croker joined the Needs Board in 2018 as Saskatchewan <laughs> Director. Um, sorry, my slides are acting up as well. He completed a Master of Political so Studies slash Science at the University of Saskatchewan in 2019. Um, currently serves in alternate capacity on the post-secondary mental health standard technical committee, which is a huge undertaking and I'm sure a very big committee. Um, and we're so, so excited uh, to have the both of you here uh, joining us today. So feel free to take it away. Um, hi guys. So we are from NEEDS. Um, if you're not familiar with the organization, NEEDS is a Canadian cross-country, cross-disability federal advocacy organization for students with disabilities that has been established for over 30 years now. Um, mental health concerns uh, can certainly cross over into disability and psychiatric disabilities, and thus students with the mental health concerns are a group that we represent on the federal level. Um, so the reason that the two of us are here today is to provide some perspectives from other provinces that are dealing with some of the same types of issues surrounding the rising rates of mental health concerns and suicide rates amongst the student community. Um, we'll be talking first about some policy and practices in our particular provinces and then hopefully touch on some of our own lived experiences uh, dealing with mental health concerns as well as uh, the suicides on campus of friends or uh, fellow students. So hopefully you can jump right in Brady. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yes, it was quite the big undertaking. There is a reason why I have no hair on my head. Um, but yeah, getting back to what Katie was talking about, I thought it would be really great for uh, you folks to get an understanding of what it's like to be a mental health advocate, especially in the disability community uh, in smaller provinces. And when we look at mental health policy in the PSC space, uh, particularly in Saskatchewan, it boils down to a couple of things. There are peer support groups that are formalized. We do have that, you know, one-on-one -on -one sort of counseling, but that's all, that's all we really have. Uh, we don't have the financial resources, and this is something that, you know, has come up quite a bit tonight, to really expand on that policy. And what our provincial government has been doing really has not been very effective, nor has it been particularly helpful for people in the PSC space. Um, it was brought up earlier today that Indigenous uh, Pearsons have suicide rates that are around 80% higher than the average population, and that is true. 
uh, our province was going to pass a provincial suicide prevention strategy, which would have targeted Indigenous folks as well as the rest of the population. Uh, unfortunately, that was struck down. And we don't know as a community where we're going to go from here. Uh, we're kind of hoping for all, perhaps a change in management with the coming up election or that the government in power has uh, something coming up through the civil service that we don't know about just yet. Kind of with that in mind, it's kind of been up to the individual schools themselves, so the University of Regina and the University of Saskatchewan, to create their own individualized strategies, which they're just now doing in 2020. Uh, yes, we are as backward as a lot of people seem to think we are <laughs> with a lot of this. So that's kind of the place that we find ourselves in. Uh, it's really, has been really great to hear from people in the, you know, in the United States tonight and Ontario, what you guys have been doing. Um, but it definitely isn't, you know, like that everywhere else. And I think maybe, Katie, if you'd like to pick up on that and what maybe uh, Nova Scotia has been doing, and then we can maybe do a bit of a compare and contrast. Yeah, so Nova Scotia is actually pretty similar in our lack of action, shall we say. Um, there was a very prominent suicide that happened here um, by a student on campus in about 2009. So this has been a fairly uh, talked about issue here for the past decade. Um, it really kind of came to the forefront in 2012 when there was a, a donation made by a local family that uh, started a support group here called um, the Stay Connected Project. So it worked with government and uh, finally launched, I think in 2015 or 2016 and set up peer support communities um, on every campus. Um, which is a lot in Nova Scotia. If you're not aware, we have 10 universities and a community college with uh, 13 campuses. Um, so they're all very small schools, but there is quite a, a number of them. Um, so yeah, what's really happening here is going on through peer support. It is supported by the government and the institution primarily because these things have been um, put up by the State Connected Project. Uh, you're getting a lot less of the independent movement um, by students to run their own peer support groups purely because they aren't able to get the funding um, from the student government or, or such. Um, but I think a lot of what's happening here um, is really growing. I should mention I am a health services researcher. I'm an epidemiologist, so um, I will be talking a little bit from that perspective as well. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, I'd say it's pretty similar and behind to uh, Ontario as well, but hopefully we can all kind of gain something from each other. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and it's part of why I got involved with the post-secondary mental health standard. Uh, this opportunity was brought forward to me, um, I would say in July of last year or so. Uh, just due to where I was with my own mental health at the time, I just felt I couldn't participate fully. So I opted for the alternate position where I am today. And I'll try and explain a little bit about <clears throat> what the standard is like and kind of what it's attempting to do. Uh, the CSA is notorious with their non-disclosure agreements and I am certain there is a sniper behind me somewhere. Um, 
basically what this standard is attempting to do is to create some floor of understanding of what mental health policy is going to look like across the entirety of the PSE space. So if you can imagine a situation where you would expect clauses on say economic well-being, uh, disability rights, um, creating new and innovative ways to create, uh, I guess you'd say intersectionality to ensure that people can thrive in their own environments. Uh, that's kind of the goal. And what they're hoping to do with this is to create enough latitude for each university to implement it in its own way. Now, speaking freely um, on my particular opinions of this, as someone who is currently going through public policy school, I can see some issues with that. Uh, however, that's just how it is, because you need to understand that for this particular standard to be adopted, it has to be this mix of palatable for university administrations, palatable for governments if they want to get on board, but just innovative enough to where it's not just business as usual. And that's quite a balance to strike, especially when you have a committee that is doing this through consensus voting with a lot of different stakeholder groups uh, that were involved. Those uh, groups would be students, um, administration, mental health professionals, and government officials as well. And that's kind of where we are with that. It is going to be published in both official languages in September is the hope. And then by that point, people will be able to have a chance to read it and get a sense of what this is and how it's going to impact mental health across the PSC space, hopefully in the province. Uh, they're hoping to have this be a evergreen document. So in that sense, every five years or so, there will be opportunities for this standard to be revised. Um, and that's kind of we are, where we are with that. And Katie, if you have anything else to add more on the policy side of things, feel free or we can move on to our next topic. Um, I think I would just like to mention, we like to keep it pretty conversational. So if anybody has any policy oriented comments from Ontario to throw in that, we'd love to hear that as well. But um, in terms of policy here, we have uh, a suicide framework prevention. I'm sure everyone is probably familiar with the one that they have in their province. Um, but uh, what we're seeing and what's seeing across Canada is this rise in uh, youth mental health presentations in the ED. Um, and that is not being dealt with um, on our provincial level, at least in Nova Scotia, particularly because we lack um, doctors and, and what they call tier one or tier two care. So they're escalating to the ED. Um, and then schools, they're not able to handle, um, the, they just take them to the escalation to the ED. And then um, when they're not admitted, they are just sent back to campus and campus is currently uh, working on some sort of policy or legislation that where they'd be able to be um, helped in some way other than just sent home again to campus to uh, carry on in the state that they were in before they got sent to the hospital. So I think that's the major um, policy that's being developed in Nova Scotia right now, but that's about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that um, again is somewhat what's happening here, I guess, in a lot of ways. Um, that's kind of also to what we're somewhat trying to do here uh, in the sense that we do have a disability rights bill that is being developed as well. Um, I can't really speak much to it because I've been to some of those consultations and those are pretty uh, private affairs, but it is something that uh, the community is watching and we are hoping that mental health 
is included in that. Uh, I have a strong suspicion it won't be just because different governments have different policy priorities. They have different budgets. They have different goals, obviously. So that's one thing that we are kind of hoping <clears throat> to establish and to, you know, to create. Um, if there's one thing I would say though, it's kind of about personal experiences. Um, it's all great to talk about what the policies are and what we, you know, have we done in the States, what we've done in Ontario, what we've done in Nova Scotia and Saskatchewan. Uh, but it's kind of important to know how this affects people. Now, I'm going to create, you know, provide a trigger warning now. I will be discussing somewhat uh, harrowing experiences that's, that uh, are around suicide. So I'm just giving that warning now. And they're kind of in two instances. And this is where I think universities and culture in general needs to improve. So a couple of years ago, I had a good friend who... Uh, took his own life. Now, I don't know how everyone was brought up. The way I brought up was a very strict, very European household. Um, if you had a problem, you dealt with it. If you uh, complained, uh, basically it was one of those, if I heard the words, well, we survived the war one more time. And if I had a dollar for every time I heard that, I'd have no student loan debt. So I think specifically here in Saskatchewan, we are way behind the times in talking about this and in trying to address it. Like the youth, you know, we are at this point more talking about it, we're more vocal about it. But those people in power, they don't really listen to it. Or if they do, it's kind of within this, within this very structured environment of what, you know, the official mental health structures are like. Um, also, there is a lack of support once you leave university. Uh, in August last year, there was a suicide attempt on my behalf, uh, just because when you spend so much time in university, that becomes your identity in a lot of ways. It becomes who you are in a lot of ways. And when you don't have that anymore, uh, and when you're looking for work in a very stagnant economy, you, you know, you can really lose yourself, especially if you don't have uh, that support system, or if you do, you don't feel like you should be accessing it. Because again, aforementioned the way you were brought up. And I think this is something that, you know, if we were to take any way, anything away from those particular experiences is, this is far from over. Uh, this is going to be something that we're going to be fighting for probably for the next couple of decades. Every generation has its kind of defining issues. And I think mental health is going to be our defining issue. And Katie, I know you had something you'd like to talk about more on what it's like to work within the accommodation system and how that affects people in general. Um, yeah, so I actually have gone through um, several degrees now and I had the same feelings about academia and, and sort of learning how to deal with my mental illness within academia. Um, so uh, I have a rather what you'd call a heavy diagnosis or, or heavy symptomology um, and just getting the uh, accommodations and things that you'd need just to get through um, university with uh, a heavier diagnosis is quite difficult. Um, just going into the uh, office at one of my universities that I've attended to talk about um, accommodations, they were like, well, are you really sure you should be here? Um, uh, basically, we don't have the accommodation level that you would need as a person with your diagnosis um, to make it through 
um, this school and we're not prepared to talk to you um, or like deal with this. And I really had to self-advocate even just to get in the door. Um, and I think for a lot of people that is intimidating enough to walk through the door to ask for accommodations, to get into the space where you're saying, yes, I have a disability. Yes, I need some uh, certain accommodation or, or certain difference um, from other students. And then to have that not be respected has been a really hard uh, thing that I've dealt with personally. And I know that others have dealt with um, throughout my academic career. And I think that's something that we don't really talk about too much in terms of accommodations. We, we tend to tend to send people on to disability services and or accessibility services and say, you know, these people have the answers and that's what we need. Um, and to a certain extent, they definitely hold some key and some power. Um, but I think what we, we need to be talking more about is how we can change the environment, not only for universal learning, but just for um, talking about mental health without necessarily the labels, just talking about um, getting the accommodations you need without necessarily having to go to a psychiatrist and get lists and lists of documentation forms when you bring them in and um, hate everything about you. Um, because some people can't afford that. Some people can't get into those doctors and they're not able to access the same um, protocols and accommodations as others. Um, and really when it comes down to it, everyone has some form of mental health or something that they could probably use an accommodation for um, that it's been a bit of gatekeeping, um, both for people on the extreme end like myself or for people on the other end of the spectrum where it's really just kind of a bit of an imbalance or a bit um, sort of a spread out, I guess it would be the best um, term I could use. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on accommodation specifically. Oh, I have plenty of thoughts on accommodation. <laughs> I wrote my entire master's uh, project on accommodation policy in Saskatchewan. Um, so the first thing that um, a lot of people may not know, especially if this is mainly a very Ontario heavy group, and I know that we have someone from the United States where you guys have the accessibility, um, your particular national legislation when it comes to disability and accommodation. In Saskatchewan, there is no disability human rights legislation. There is a human rights code. So what does that really mean when you want to go get accommodations and it just doesn't work out super well? Well, for one, there is no human rights tribunal here. You have to go to court to get accommodated if things just go wrong. That's the first thing that happens here. And then it is all interpreted through jurisprudence. And in Saskatchewan, it's a very small case size based on what I've seen, what I've researched. Um, and it can be incredibly daunting. And it's very problematic for a situation where you know, maybe you just can't afford, like Katie said, you can't necessarily afford a lawyer um, unless, you know, you have someone who does this pro bono. Um, and these can take years. Um, I've looked at cases where this started in, you know, the problem started maybe in 1999 and it didn't get resolved till 2005. Um, while, like I say, we are building disability legislation here in the province, uh, that really won't have much of an impact for quite a while. Um, and back to kind of what it's like to get those accommodations. It's very similar to what Katie is saying uh, in Saskatchewan. You know, you have to go to the psychiatrist if you need, for example, an evaluation if you're good in math or not, or how to get accommodations that way. 
the money is divvied out a little different though. Um, Saskatchewan is very lucky in the sense that there is a grant you can apply for every year uh, for services and equipment. Um, you can go in and get your money and then you can get things done. And then it's very low cost to most people in the province here. I think Katie, you and I were talking yesterday that if you want you know, to get assessed for certain accommodations, you have to shell out money out of your own pocket and then you may not get, get reimbursed. I don't know if that's necessarily like that in Ontario um, or the States really. But my point with this is even when you want accommodation, that's on you. The system really isn't built you know, for people like us or for advocates really you have to fit within that system. And this is something that I think we really need to change and start thinking about. We need people uh, like myself, like Katie, like a, whoever else who is a student leader who does or does not have a disability to be in those positions to say to government, well, no, we would like you to do this instead. Or, well, no, we'd like this to happen. But that only really happens when you start changing hiring practices, when you start changing uh, race, uh, you know, racism within culture, when you look at how institutions are run and kind of how they all link together. And this is going to be a multi-decades fight. Um, and there are people here on this uh, call who have been doing this since the 1980s. So this really isn't over. And I'm sorry to be a bit of a downer with this, but uh, unfortunately that's what political scientists do. <laughs> yeah, I do think a lot of um, the good movements that are happening especially within student groups are very disability just oriented, which is great. But I feel like schools, at least in Nova Scotia, are quite far behind that. So where you're starting as an advocate when you're dealing with the school is much more like, yes, I'm allowed to be here, let, let alone like you should be having universal design for all of us and, and things like that. Um, so I think it is uh, important to, to note that like really when you're dealing with the institution, you have to go back so far in your repertoire of what you would like to see and what you know needs to happen and start there with them when you have the conversations um which is really unfortunate mm -hmm. all right um well thank you for the opportunity for us to present today i know that we have one more presenter today and um thank you for your time thanks for having us Folks, I, I actually, uh, we don't necessarily have another presenter. We had some student-led um, content that we were thinking of bringing up, but perhaps instead, uh, Charlotte, if you can just switch to the next slide or two. Um, you know, if folks have any interest in looking at additional student perspectives, research, testimonials, etc. cetera. Um, if we could just switch to slide 20, 20, uh, 27. Are we moving into the exactly yes so QA, perfect yeah yeah so just as a brief uh, mentioning here sprinkling um, slide oh no that's not twenty seven uh, <laughs> if anybody wants to look at more testimonials uh, if anybody wants to oh you know what this is from an older okay you know what that's totally fine uh, there is a, a link there are two links that we can share later but essentially. Uh, one is to the 2019 uh, like scoping literature review that was conducted for uh, the national standard work that Brady has been associated with. Uh, and I, I personally think that requesting a copy from the folks who worked on, on this expansive, expansive literature review um, from 2019, just looking at even the exact summary is actually really helpful for any student advocate who wants to know what they're talking about. 
yeah. on the flip side, uh, student-created gray literature reports from the ground in the form of Nothing About Us Without Us, um, a document from the spring of 2019 that a lot of student ad advocates, mental health um, enthusiasts, students, you know, community members made uh, in the wake of another death by suicide. Um, and, you know, at a time when a lot of us knew, uh, once again, admin would say, we don't know what to do. You know, students tried to address the void more intentionally, given that that was the second on-campus well-known death in a short period of time at U of T. So in, in that winter, um, that's when Nothing About Us Without Us and the, this report that includes feedback from literally hundreds of students uh, came about with, you know, the nascent uh, organizational, you know, group that like became the U of T Mental Health Policy Council. So I guess, uh, yeah, you know what, if um, Maya, uh, Constanza, Charlotte, if someone could um, copy paste the text that's currently on slide 27 uh, into the chat because I'm just having limited capabilities there. Otherwise, we'll follow up with um, these bit.ly URLs later that make ex accessing those two documents a bit more convenient. Um, mm -hmm. That'd be cool. Otherwise, uh, let's let's zip right into the Q&As because yeah. we have some incredible people here today. Uh, and we, really we want to get to some questions. I know, Kelly, you have to run. So we have some on the screen and for folks on this call, please feel free to add other questions on the chat and we'll review them and ask them. But Kelly, there was something that really stood out in, in your presentation um, where you said that one of the points that you highlight for, for the students and the universities that you work with is sort of the relationship with the administration and to facilitate students in feeling um, okay, I guess, going to the administration. And I was just curious, um, how do you, f that's sort of a reality that I wouldn't necessarily say speaks to some Canadian universities. Do you find that that's different in the States? Do you find that all in all administration is supportive, I guess, because their policies are, or how is the situation? Because here that's certainly not something I could say is, is so true necessarily. Yeah, so no, it's most of the, the schools that I highlight are the exceptions. Um, most campuses are pretty hostile to anything that's not like bringing in dogs to pet for like stress relief. Um, but no, schools are very, very non-supportive. I, I really appreciate what was said in the, in the last, um, I had a similar experience where they were just like, people like you don't go to college, you should go home kind of thing. Um, and I went to a progressive school, progressive school right? Um, so I think that, no, most universities are not, um, not very open. I think like things that I've seen, tactics that I've seen that are most, um, most successful are like aligning yourself or building strong relationships with student government leadership. Um, I think that it's in some cases it's being like openly hostile, like having good relationships with student government, but also like a bit of antagonizing um, of the leadership. And I think too, like unfortunately, the biggest thing that I um, right there's two unfortunate realities of what gets some to change. One is like a public suicide. Um, sometimes, not always. Um, so making them worried about their public reputation and then on the other side showing them how much money they're losing by students dropping out or killing themselves like unfortunately like those are the biggest things that i think motivate leadership 
and then they kind of, like not to be like a pessimist but like a lot of times they get away they they do what they can get away with and a lot of students I think particularly students with disabilities, like campuses have been so not accommodating that it's really easy for them to do whatever they want because you're not there anymore. Um, so I would say aligning with existing student leadership. Um, I think too, like there's, there's a lot of space. I, I appreciate what Brady said about mental health being like our generation's thing, because I think that there are even within the last five years, the willingness of students from non-mental health organizations to talk about mental health, I think puts mental health advocacy at least in a better position from an upward pressure sense because more students from different groups are willing to at least talk about it and share their personal experience. Like very few of these things are quick fixes necessarily, right? Like the students who I work with like stand on the shoulder of giants. Um, but I think at least having examples of what can be done is really helpful, but no, I would say the overwhelming majority of university administrators in the U.S. like care about money. They have billion-dollar endowments, and we get nothing. <laughs> we get we get no support with anything. Um, I I second, you know, the the U.S. healthcare system is really horrible. So I think requiring medical document intensive documentation for accommodations when students don't have access to healthcare is I don't know how that's allowed, <laughs> um, but that's also a really common thing here where it's like, you not only are too disabled, you're too poor and you can't afford the paper that is that says we might help you a little bit to stay here. So no, the US is bad. In, in conclusion, the US is bad. US is bad, all right. <laughs> we should rename the title of this panel. That really feels appropriate. Um, <laughs> we have some other questions here. Um, one for kind of everyone here. Uh, what in your experience or experiences has been uh, the most successful tactic for just creating systemic change across the post-secondary level? If you want to speak to something maybe you haven't brought up or emphasize something you already have. Anyone's welcome to go. There we go. Uh, do you mind if I just kind of start and then I'll just pass it around? Sure. All right. Um, I'm going to use kind of our generation's favorite word. Okay, boomer. Um, the way I found this to be the most effective, and this isn't with everyone, you know, who's in their 40s or 50s, obviously, but it's to get them to understand that this isn't the same world they grew up in, right? Um, how many of you have heard, oh, it was the 1980s and jobs are hard to come by too. But if you can make people in positions of power understand, it really is one of the quickest ways to get them to go, oh, what we're doing is wrong and we're hurting people and this is going to cause a lot of problems. Um, it might not, it, it seems obvious, but it's something that we just tend not to do because, you know, why would we talk to mom and dad about it? Because they don't understand, right? Um, another thing I find that has been very effective, honestly, is just being not quite militant, but being very good at explaining things in, I guess you'd say, in the university vernacular. Uh, that's what we tend to do here in Saskatchewan. We don't really do the protest thing. Um, there isn't 25 hours in a day, and we all need to be on the farm at some point. But we have to, you know, basically do it that way. And I guess I'll throw it up to Katie. Um, I guess I was going to say a similar thing, which is um, I think a lot of the organization work that's being done here, especially on campuses like NASCAD, 
um, through their peer support groups is great and it's very um, strong. And when you're coming to talk, you need someone who can display those strong opinions and um, positions from the students to the faculty or to the institution with a little bit of tact. I think that's what we we learned the hard way, um, kind of through some of our actions as we were going in with a very strong position that they didn't understand. And um, so when you're approaching the school, it's important not to lose your own ground, but it is important to learn how to speak to them and how they're thinking about the position so that you can introduce your ideas in a way that's not necessarily going to be uh, putting them on guard. Um, so there's an important line where, that you have to find where it's um, between, you know, getting the actual message across and things that you need um, and things that need to be fixed and um, basically pushing people outside of willing to help you because you're too forward with your messaging. And it's not necessarily to say that you need to back off that at all, but you just need to figure out how to talk to the right people at the right time. I think that's what you're saying. Oh, you happen to have uh, I see I see gears. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm like my my expressive face will be the death of me. Um, <laughs> I think that I certainly agree with that. I think that it's important to have like both. So like the or the student organizing, like galvanizing people, and then the people who are willing to go in and have those conversations. Because I also think when you see extreme demands from students, everything that we're going to go in and actually ask for is going to look pretty normal, like pretty like, okay, compared to, you know, what yeah. we want and what we're going to yell at them and make signs about and say and all of those things or like uh, change.org petitions or, you know, however that, however that organizing looks on your campus. Um, what was the other thing I was going to say? I mean, in the U.S., part of it is like lawsuits. Um, and I think the other thing too is like um, external pressure from the organization. So like one of the things that I've on the disability accommodations piece, I think, and I don't know if this is the same in, in Canada, but in the US professors have so much leeway in whether or not they'll accept your accommodations um, or like acknowledge them that I think like they, they get away with a lot. And I think that there's a lot of, um, a lot of, what's the word? Like, I, I think that just like sometimes doing like harsher things organizing students in that way, putting pressure, like bringing to light things that like they're getting away with because they're happening individually, um, I think is, I think is really important. Um, yeah. So I would say, you know, you need the, you need both, like you need the, the external pressure um, and the people who are willing to have the like nice conversations. I would say also like a lot of times, even people antagonize the wrong people. So the counseling center director doesn't have that much power. Um, and like, I didn't realize, right? Like as a student, like I was like, this person is in our way and is hurting us. So I want to yell at them. And it was like, they have such, like in the context of the university, they don't control the money. Like they don't control the big decisions. Like somebody else decides how many staff they get, what they get funded to do. So I think aiming higher and under, like really having a fundamental understanding of like who the key people on your campus are who are making decisions about where money goes. 
Um, and then trying to like work through either student government or like other people who have strong connections with like the board of trustees or whoever like can be another way to like play the power game that they play. Yeah, I totally agree. That's really great advice for sure. Sometimes you what you see isn't necessarily what you get behind the scenes, right? Absolutely. Uh, we have a question here. Um, how has the use of university mandated leave of absence policies or equivalents, I know sometimes the terminology is a little different stateside, mm-hmm. how have they evolved uh, across post-secondary to your knowledge? Uh, and are there any programs or campaigns that you believe um, you know, can be used as good models, case studies, uh, reference points for any attempts to build uh, a similar anti-mandated leave campaign at U of T or other Canadian institutions who kind of find themselves in a similar position? Yeah, this is a big thing that happened in the U.S. within the past few years. Um, If you are familiar at all with, there's a large lawsuit at Stanford um, for, it's unfortunately incredibly common for students. And here, here's the like trick that they do where, because this happened to me, is like they will pressure you, they will pressure you to do it yourself, right? So like they don't do anything wrong. Um, so there, there's a lot of pressure that instead of me telling you that you could get accommodations, instead of me trying to help you explore, like, what are the resources that are available in the community, I'm going to say, maybe you should take some time off. And then you leave, uh, oftentimes drop out, and in the U.S. have six months to start paying your debt. Um, because that's when the student loan bills start coming in, right? So I think that it's a really common practice both explicitly in like one of the things I don't know again like I'm not I'm not going to keep asking if it's the same account one of the things that happens in the U.S. is that some schools have self uh, as part of their um, student conduct guides like violation is harm to another student and you're considered a student so like that's also been something that's come up for students who get caught self-harming so there's a lot of really horrible things happening here I think that um, the, uh, the, the work at Stanford, and I think if you're familiar with the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law in the US, they have resources, um, they have like some comprehensive resources on what an ideal leave of absence policy looks like. Um, but, but unfortunately, yeah, it's really common for students to either get kicked out, or I think, think there needs to be a, a bigger dialogue around having some sort of like appointed student leaders to help Mm -hmm. other students navigate that process because otherwise you're like I'm like you're like I didn't get out of bed for five days you're asking me to do like 50 pages of paperwork and saying maybe you shouldn't be here like I'm not in a I'm not in a in a position to advocate for myself so I think too that that schools owe it to their students to create more resources Um, You know, it's mutual aid right now, but like to create more formal structured resources where you're explaining like your rights and things that are available to you. But I think like as long as they can get away with kicking students out, because it's a lot of it comes from this liability fear that like we're going to get sued if you kill yourself here or if you hurt another student. Um, So I think like suing them is a good way to, to get them to take it seriously because their weight of like the effort it's going to the, the risk that comes from doing literally anything is not worth the reward of supporting more students because they can get away with doing nothing 
amazing. So, and actually, Charlotte, um, so that was like a follow-up question uh, related to everything that Kelly is saying. And I had that question as well. So basically, do any of our panelists um, know of any institutions or organizations or anything you have observed um, that's sort of effective in providing these sort of practical um, protection from this type of institutional violence um, so that there are steps along the way until these leaves, like these leave policies are in place that prevent students from basically being forced out. So I don't know if Katie or Brady, if you want to start um, on this follow-up question on that. I'm actually just reading the question now and then I'll get back to you. Katie, if you've um, read it, do you mind starting or? Yeah, um, to be honest, like a lot of it goes to the Human Rights Commission in the end here. Um, there's, in, in Nova Scotia specifically, I think um, because we are a small province, maybe I'm just, I'm not aware of anything that's gone um, that way that hasn't had to end up in, in the human rights court. Um, but there is a lot of push now um, because of the Accessibility Act that was just put in. They're doing an educational assessment uh, group where they're hearing from students and things like that to try and make it so those are less happening less often. But obviously that's not really um, effective in all cases. Um, so yeah, really what it, I've come in contact with is uh, utilizing my provincial and federal advocacy groups. So um, either the CFS or Students Nova Scotia um, or uh, on the federal level, I think it's the CFS or CASA. Um, and they are uh, really have been helpful for me when I've needed it. They're able to put pressure on government and institutions at the same time for you. Um, so that's been pretty useful. They're also really good at kind of grassroots advocacy and getting people together for you um, if there's been like a num number of uh, incidents of that happening. Um, but other than that, I don't know of any particular um, institutions that are dedicated to that in Nova Scotia. Uh, and on the SK side, um, it's kind of the same deal. Um, if you want to go to the Human Rights Commission, you can. Uh, best of luck to you. Um, there are a couple of things you can do. Um, the student union, particularly at the U of S, is a very, very, very strong instrument uh, at the undergraduate level. Our um, campus is weird in that they segregate the graduate and undergraduate students. That's just something that people wanted back in the mid-2000s. I don't know why. Um, there are <clears throat> national disability organizations that advocate more on the consumer side as it's known in this community. Um, we are one of them, although I don't think we've really done a lot of advocacy in the courts. Um, there is CCD, or Council of Canadians with Disabilities. They do a lot of advocacy as well into the courts, although I don't really know if they've done this more so on the mental health side of things. Um, and it's kind of really sad to see it that way. Like, we don't really have uh, the culture here in Canada of we are going to sue. It is more of what's hoped through the best of these structures. Um, and I think that's also built on how our disability legislation is built. Um, we aren't considered a particular 
class of people in law here, but we are more wrapped in how more in the citizenship things and just kind of as a citizen, these are the rights you are entitled to. So I think that's kind of why this is the way this is. That's awesome. I, I love Nadia's questions also in the chat if folks feel comfortable answering that. I mean, number one would be when starting a new mental health initiative, do any of you have any tactics you recommend for uh, reaching students who tend to fall through the cracks, like specifically folks with disabilities and or who identify as mad, mentally ill, so on, uh, and isolated students who often need these resources most, but for a number of reasons, you know, what won't seek or can't seek them out? Um, one thing that we recommended when I was working at Nova Students Nova Scotia was that um, the literature be sent out to all students who register with disability services to begin with, and also anyone who takes a leave of absence should get full documentation of all resources on campus, student organized and otherwise, um, if the student organizations are able to do so. So that, that does require institutional help because obviously you can't know who took the leave of absence, but um, getting that in there, because even if they took a leave of absence for a reason that's not mental health related, chances are they could use mental health resources when they come back. Um, so that's one thing we've, we've found has been very helpful. Um, another is just, uh, trying to go to, uh, areas on our campus again, because we have much smaller campuses where there tend to be more congregation of students that aren't necessarily part of groups or things like that, just, uh, like the libraries and things like that, and try and get literature out in those spaces. Um, and really trying to talk to people one-on-one -on -one, um, because if they get to know you more as a person, they're more likely to come individually, but I don't know necessarily how effective that would be on such a large campus. Do you have any more feedback on Alice before questions? Yeah, so, so I would say, especially if it's new, like try to embed it in the design um, because sometimes with new initiatives, you build things that aren't necessarily either like what people want or how they want it. Um, so doing, yes, having one-on-one -on -one conversations with people, but I think also just like, like putting feelers out, right? You want to go where people spend their time, right? So different areas on campus. But I think too, like just as an example, one of the cool things that one of the students that I've worked with this past year, it created something called the Pizza Project. It's definitely not relevant during COVID. Um, but would have like different areas on campus where they gave away free pizza and you had to click this um, QR code to get it. And the QR code was all the mental health resources. Um, so like doing things like that, like, like using things that are, are relevant to people um, and getting their feedback from the beginning. Um, because sometimes, you know, you get so far along that you end up building things. If that's your target population, you want to make sure you're getting feedback either from those people now, if possible, or people who identify with that experience and asking them like on this, you go to this school and you have this lived experience. Like, how could I build this in a way that you would have utilized um, before you, you know, when you were really having a hard time. That sounds amazing. Um, <laughs> I think, do we have time for one more question? 
I think we've got a second one. Uh, again, Kelly, if, if you or anyone really has to motor on out, one more. You have time for one more? One more, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so in your opinions, and this will come up a little bit later as well with, let's say, our, our peer support workshop from, from Stephanie, the founder and ED currently of Project Let's, but um, what are good resources for, I know, Kelly, I'm excited. I'm going to say Project Let's. <laughs> what are good resources for training A, student mentors, mental health advocates and be faculty I've just received grant funding from U of T like essentially there's um, an, an idea here like you know we, I could be starting something where do I go uh, and also I've been trying to make a half hour identify assist referred training module mandatory um, IAR is what's commonly recommended by admin at U of T um, as kind of like a starting point for mental health training I've uh, been trying to make that mandatory among the faculty in my department, and I was wondering if there might be an alternate training that might be more effective you know, like in that context as well. Anyone? Yeah, so, yeah, so on the, on the first note, I mean, I am the, like, biggest, I'm, like, one of Project Blood's biggest fans. I think that their, um, their stuff is so so important because it gets at a lot of the like interpersonal relationship and dynamic stuff that all peer trainings would do, but it also situates itself in a broader context. Um, so it's very informed by other issues, uh, other justice specific issues, um, and is also, um, also has components around advocacy. So it's yes, you're training people on how to provide direct support to one another, but you're also training them to like understand people's different identities and different things that might be impacting them. Um, and also like how to navigate, navigate resources, because I think that, you know, that can come from lived experience, right? But I think that it's really helpful if it comes from training. I would say for faculty, like the biggest thing that's used in the US, I think is like Cognito, if you're familiar with that is, it's like KO, it's, they have like this, like, um, I don't think it's like VR, but this like you like play role play with this like computer thing. Um, I haven't, I'm not super familiar. I don't do much work on the faculty side, um, but I actually do hear that as like one of the biggest, um, one of the biggest issues from students is just like faculty not being willing to put mental health resources in the syllabus, which is like, doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but, but I would say that Cognito is the big one that I know of in the US but I don't know enough alternatives where I would recommend anything, if that makes sense. And then most commonly here, I don't know if QPR is the same, um, but question, persuade, refer, that's the like gatekeeper um, kind of uh, training that most of the um, students who are doing peer support get in the, in the peer support, like different peer support models, but then also the staff. Um, I think it's, Similar um, here, uh, I know for student peer support groups, there's a actual peer support certification in, in Nova Scotia. Uh, so usually they try and get someone who's got that uh, certification to at least be in charge or to um, deal the, the training itself for peer support workers. Um, again, because we do have the uh, State Connected Project, which does the transition between um, under 18 and over 18 healthcare resources as well as the peer support group on campus. Um, it's a little bit different here. 
Um, I would say though, NASCAD does have a fantastic and flourishing peer support program. Um, and I would really reach out to them if you are able. Um, they're a small school, so it will be a little bit different, but it's, um, they've got by far the best in the, in the province here. Um, all right, thank you so, so much. That is, I mean, wow. Uh, Kelly, I know you gotta go, but it has been such a pleasure to have all of the panelists here today. Uh, once again, if folks wanna connect with any of these folks, you can ask us for their contact information. Uh, you can look up Mental Health America and needs, um, and that should be relatively easy to find, maybe. Um, <laughs> really, really appreciate it and hope we can connect soon. We've also got a bit more time for more Q&A action with the folks who can remain on, if that's good. Uh, and a friendly kind of reminder here, if you can be helping, if you can help with plugging the mental health, like just the Facebook event for this or any social media, um, or just share the registration form with a friend or two that you think might be interested, whatever, that would be really appreciated. Uh, we've still got a fair bit of the summit to go, including not only the rest of part one and our live learnings, but also discussion-based strategy, coalition and campaign building, perhaps sessions, discussion sessions uh, that will be happening uh, week after next as well. And, and hopefully this will be the start of a lot more work and fun to come. So thanks again, Kelly. Right. Thank you all so much. Thanks, bye. Um, yeah, I mean, we have a couple more questions here uh, that I think are pretty neat. And if anyone, once again, has a question they'd like to ask, please, please, please drop it into the chat and, and we will get to that. Um, so one question, I suppose, is, you know, like, what is the number one thing, uh, in your opinion, that the average student or loved one of a student perhaps is, is misunderstanding about student mental health or broadly the student mental health crisis? Um, for me, I think it's understanding that there is a lot more pressure now for what happens after university, right? It doesn't help when, how many people have heard this before? When are you going to get a job or what are you going to do with your life afterwards? And you kind of sit there in a corner and grab your head and scream. Um, I think that we need to really start understanding that getting into the workforce after university is by far one of the most difficult things to do right now. And the more help we can provide students to do that and to get support around that, the better. Yeah, I think um, a lot of it really comes down to people don't necessarily expect that they're going to have as much pressure internally um, from academia as maybe is, is going to come, um, or as much as you absorb that as your identity or just um, you know, the sheer number of courses you're taking and combined with like having to work or just having a other life uh, objectives <laughs> for yourself. Um, but also, um, I think a lot of people think it's just um, turn like the age where because a lot of mental on mental illness onset is around the age of university students um, that the two are like almost one one problem. I think there is also a lot of elements of education and academia that lead to mental health crises that are not necessarily just inherent in the age group. Um, so, and especially like intersectionality and, uh, and things like that, that really come with the educational environment. 
Absolutely. Uh, if, I, if I can jump in briefly too here, I think um, from a student perspective, what I am kind of personally indignant about is when people immediately cite social media and the fact that people are on their phones more. Uh, I personally see people being on their phones more uh, as a product of things like, well, to some extent, capitalism and systems, uh, products, apps being made uh, more and more to create mirror dialogues, voices, right? And just kind of tune you in by making like like minds or messaging uh, more accessible to you. There's a little bit of that that contributes to hyperpartisanship and isolation and whatever, you know, for sure. But uh, otherwise, it's, it's a vehicle for people to connect and more and more people are being demanded uh, you know, constant attention and availability and flexibility, right? Part-time work is on the rise. Uh, irregular hour work is on the rise. Uh, very hyper-flexible, like, hybrid ways of just being a student while also being multiple other things. Like, let's say a super commuter, for example. These things are all on the rise. Uh, social media isn't, you know, some sort of unique evil to, let's say, a younger generation. I would personally posit that it is, in fact, um, increasing inequities, uh, health inequities, economic inequities, uh, increasing problems that come from things like uh, city centers being the way that they are and, and super commuters literally having higher risk of heart attacks from like the, the kinds of commutes where people are coming from Windsor to Toronto and back in order to make their lives increasingly feasible. Like that's something we're seeing more and more now as housing, housing sorry, prices uh, rise at a rate in Toronto that's twice the rate at which, uh, let's say, our wages are increasing. Um, and, and certainly, if you have advantages already, it's just that much more easier than if you are already a disenfranchised student and or someone who doesn't come from money or previous schooling as much. So, um, yeah, it's not that we're all just like sociopathic or narcissistic, like social media brats. I, I really want everyone to think about or to be talking to their loved ones more so about what it means uh, to, to be a student who, you know, uh, whose parents maybe could have afforded to go to post-secondary, could have afforded their tuition by working a part or full-time job just in the summer, or could have afforded a house, could have found a job easily as soon as they came out of undergrad. Um, and what kind of stressors correlate with that, as well as the increasing exploitation uh, of under-supported international students who are an increasingly vulnerable demographic uh, and large demographic across Canada that we'll be hearing a bit more about later. Uh, and, and so, mm -hmm. right, it's very material and social. Yeah. Um, Can I just, just add, I guess, something to Lucinda, what you were saying, I think. It's so interesting that we also tend to normally the discourse is generally centered around academics as well. But the truth is that, you know, being 18, 19, whenever you finish high school, um, is in and of itself a time of change in people's lives. And so if that happens simultaneously, it's a time of growth. It's a time of becoming, you're becoming a, a, a young adult, you're becoming independent there's so much more happening than just school, right? And that's when these diagnoses tend to come in. Again, from certain perspectives, that's, you know, oppressive from certain others, that's whatever it is helpful, but having sort of that intersectional understanding, I think is is so paramount. And, and looking at those, at those timings has been more than just, you know, oh, you have it so easy because you're young. It's almost like the opposite. Like, it's a challenge. It's an inherent yep. challenge. 
if I can add to that, um, what we're going through is a type of oppression. If anyone here, you know, has taken some basic history, this is a new gilded age. What we're seeing is a concentration of wealth that we really don't have much control over. You know, if we did, I don't think either any of us would take student loans if we didn't have to. Um, I think there needs to be very deep systemic change in how we think about university. Is university even sustainable? Is what this is and what we expect it to be sustainable? We have to remember this was built after the Second World War and that, that environment just doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Um, if I were, if you told me, hey, you're in the Saskatchewan Civil Service in, or the Federal Civil Service in your first act, what would you do? I'd say we would forgive all student loan debt today. 100% because it's not productive. Um, and what's the only way you can feed yourself? Well, you know, it's ridiculous. Noam Chomsky actually, I think, has written extensively about how the student debt and that entire system is very strategic to keep um, the young adult population stressed out, ill in many different ways and well. Um, and so you don't have time to think, you don't have time to live, you don't have time for well-being, you don't have time for, for any of that, because here you are drowning in debt, working two jobs, going to school full time. And then something that both um, you, Brady, and, and, and Katie, you said also sort of made me think, both of you sort of mentioned identities and sort of academia at the same time as we're struggling with this, and this is like our oppressor and this is like our enemy almost, but it also becomes part of your identity. And like, you don't wanna let go of that. You identify as a student, you identify as an academic, you have those letters beside your name. So how do you reconcile that? Um, Katie, do you wanna start first? I gotta chew on that one for a minute. <laughs> I think I do too. I don't know if there's an answer, to be honest, yet. Do like you want to like rephrase the question just to make it a bit more like pointed and digestible? Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, I guess what I'm wondering is, and, and this isn't, I, I hope it doesn't come off as a criticism because I have struggled with this myself of obviously in my younger years, I, I, you know, I plastered my, my room with like UFT posters. So like all of my identity was, you know, I was a UFT student and what do you do? I'm a UFT student. I had no identity outside of that identity. So when things happened, that broke me down from a very deep level that I eventually have come to reconcile on my own. Um, but I was curious how you sort of reconcile this relationship of, you know, the institution you know what it is, you, you, you're speaking to it, you're aware of it, yet, you know, you're pursuing it at the same time. So it's... Um, I think, to think about that, um, for me, it was a very destructive process, I'll admit. Um, I mentioned the suicide attempt. But outside of that, um, outside of that very turbulent growth that we are increasingly experiencing, I would say it's by having a few core values that you believe in very strongly. And that sounds very fuddy-duddy and very lovely, very rainbowy. But those core values are what you actually honestly are. Like, I'm looking at my desk here and I've got my U of S degree right next to me. It was a great experience to learn. But when you become older and you realize that, you know, when you're in the rat race, there's very little you can control, you have so much more mental space to have a lot more inner strength and a lot more reliance to understand that, no, I am not the problem. The fact that I'm a student isn't the problem. The problem is I don't have the capacity or the resources to not spiral down into something horrific. 
Uh, and I think that that is something that, you know, we've really been talking about here today as mental health advocates. Um, the more we can build that within people, resilience it's called, the better, I think. Um, yeah, I think pretty similarly, I, I didn't ever really take on the identity of like, um, of my particular school or anything like that, which I know a lot of people do, or, or, you know, the idea of just being a student, but I did really take on the idea of being an academic and like that being my role, which is really inferred and like inferred or, uh, pressed upon me by, you know, my friends and family who are like, oh, you're going to grad school or, oh, whatever. So like, that's your personality now. Um, and I think it almost came from like an outside source. And it's something that I have to struggle with to try and break in my own mind. That's almost, um, it's like, it's being pushed onto me and I have internalized it almost like self-stigma <laughs> um, as, as something I need to try and work through. And that is um, definitely something that I still struggle with today. So I don't know if I could answer your question fully on that one. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of comes with the, the job in a way to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I know I've been very talkative, but I have a lot of thoughts about this. I think a lot of this too is that hyperpolarization that we see. We so desperately want to cling on to something, uh, you know, the better off we are for it, we think. And I'm not trying to dismiss social media, um, not at all. But social media does create that hyperpolarization. Uh, and I think we see that in our daily lives more and more often. It's not what political party you vote for, whether it's team blue, green, orange, red, purple, whatever. It's more that we have to be a part of a tight-knit group now because we're missing certain elements of that that don't necessarily exist anymore. Whether that was the church a couple decades ago or that was more civic engagement, although we're all very engaged here. Um, we're trying to find something because the forces of the market as they exist aren't human. And they're trying to shape us into something that we're not. And I think that's something that we also need to consider as well when we're reconciling this identity. I, I think just really quickly, maybe not even quickly, my apologies in advance if it's <laughs> all over, but uh, something relevant to all the points that I think you, you, you just, both of you just brought up. Um, so I, I, went, I went to this mental health panel uh, discussion that was organized by the computer science department actually about a, a half a year ago. Um, and, and two memorable points were raised, memorable to me. Uh, the first one was in response to a question about resiliency. I think one younger student very astutely said um, that, you know, what about resiliency as uh, it is represented in administrative uh, work or programming or like ad ad admin and institution-led uh, programming, you know, all the stuff that's like develop resiliency and you'll be okay. It's on you to develop resiliency. What is resi resiliency? Being able to do it. Other people are doing it. What's wrong with you? Uh, so that student was saying, uh, you know, to one panelist in particular who, who really lauded the concept of resiliency, don't you think there's a toxic version of this that exists? And the panelist uh, who'd been pro-resiliency said, no, I think you're just talking about something different. I, I define resiliency as sustainability. What can I do to keep doing what I'm doing for a long time and like happily, right? Uh, and at one point slightly later, the same panelist commented on how a school or workplace culture can simply just not be a good fit for you. Like there's this idea in some startups, for example, where, where some adhere to this adage, I only hire animals. 
And, and so some people thrive in that sort of culture and actually a lot more and more in academia in any context, you know, it's animals only. It's like the people who can just work hard and incessantly. And some people don't seem to mind the amount that they're working with and, and the culture is a good fit for them is what this panelist said, right? Um, I think that makes a lot of sense uh, because of how you can even understand burnout. Burnout for folks who aren't aware was coined as like a phenomenon in the 70s when it was being observed across various nursing cohorts in New York, I believe, in the States. Uh, you know, these very similar patterns in psychological as well as physical symptoms. Uh, and, and what they identified was this common theme, high output, high effort, low input, low return for a prolonged period of time. That's what it means to produce an unsustainable dynamic in any context, truly. And so, you know, back, back to this panel, right? I, I raise my hand and I'm like, so I think this idea is really illuminating because a lot of animals, a lot of people who whatever, love what they're doing or at least how they're doing it. And I think that's an inherent part of why they can sustainably be an animal, right? So, and I think this really relates to the resiliency conversation because maybe there's almost a semantic just definitional discrepancy here, right? And I, I'm really resonating with what was said about toxic resiliency. I think we're talking about two different kinds and one promotes agency, awareness, care, sustainability. The other version does not authentically come from a non-resilient person. And in some cases is driven by a desire to obscure how there are external factors at play, right? Like when admin focused disproportionately on programming on supports that emphasize developing one's own resiliency. That is a way to make students take responsibility for systemic issues. Um, and so maybe a follow-up question here, right, is uh, how might we structure or restructure learning environments like post-secondary institutions such that everyone's able to love what they do or at least how they're doing it and avoid normalizing toxic resiliency as well as burnout. Um, and, and fundamentally, I think what came up again and again and what's been mentioned in different discussions when, when I've spoken at events or this or that, you know, safe spaces to fail. It's not safe if you've got too much money sunk into something and you can't exit without, you know, some really serious battle scars. It's not safe if you don't have good sexual violence policies and if someone has a hiccup because of violence, they can't bounce back or they can't get tuition or they can't get counseling. Um, and you certainly can't fail if there are measures in place that make it hard for you to switch to a program that's more rewarding or bouncing back after you've had poor grades for any reason, including maybe a poor fit of a program when you first get into school, like all these different things. So. Um, maybe if there's one thing to think about here or two things, it'd be one, you know, what is resiliency? Let's be really critical about that because there's actually a lot of discourse and academic investigations already into how that's actually being weaponized by people who just want you to be more productive and less observant and B, you know, in thinking about this like more sustainable version of resiliency, what does that, what does that actually look like? Does it actually look like getting involved with your student union so that student groups and communities and social relationships that are nurturing can form more easily. I think that's probably what that is to some extent, as well as like personal care practices and so much more. So um, yeah, just, just a brief aside on resiliency and beyond. I'm, I'm, I'm done now, brief. Um, <laughs> uh, I, 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 wanna, I wanna turn also to this question, um, you know, of, of just like, mental health in general, um, but something on my mind that I'd like to hear about from anyone in this space right now is just like, what do you think was the most helpful thing for bolstering your mental health? What, what do you think made, made you feel the most well across your educational experiences or even outside of PSI spaces? Hmm. I could piggyback a little bit on that, maybe both, but also 
you're in, I know both of you mentioned really difficult moments, like um, Katie, when you know you went to access um, supports and accommodations, and you were told, you know, maybe this is just not for you. And um, and Brady, you mentioned again, um, you know, the whole identity and, and and suicide crisis that came with that. So I guess you could answer both at at those lowest points, I guess, but also maybe in general. But I'd be interested in hearing both, if possible. Sure. Um, for me, at the lowest point, thinking back, uh, for me, it's like the year anniversary, and I've had a lot of time to reflect on it. I had a very, very, very um, supportive colleague um, who was on the board, and she was just a good person to talk to, because we were very similar in a lot of ways. Um, I'm not going to necessarily spell out that entire night because it's a night I like to forget as much as possible. But she had said something that I went, okay, well, I'm not going to do what I was thinking of doing. I'll set that down. Uh, and I got to admit, it took me months to get back to normal in a way, right? Um, I decided I was going to go back for public policy because I knew I really wanted to work in government. I knew what I was doing just wasn't working, right? And my student loan debt at the time wasn't terrible, so I figured it was the right decision. Um, as for what is resiliency, I'm going to be honest, and it's going to sound really corny, but it is being able to be mindful of things. Um, being mindful of what your mind is doing, being mindful of what you're feeling, and explaining what that feeling is without putting so much harsh judgment on yourself. Um, how many times have we all gotten frustrated by something, by how something is going, and you say, oh, this is X and this is Y, and we always add that negativity to it. The more we beat ourselves down, the more everybody else wins and we fail from it, I think. And to me, that's what resiliency is. Um, it's trying to disengage from that rat race a little bit and only really focusing on you without comparing yourself to others, if at all possible. Um, I think, you know, my lowest point wasn't so much um, when I was in school, it's, it's the periods where I had to leave. Um, and, uh, you know, I experienced some sexual violence fo followed by a psychotic episode. Um, that was easily the, the hardest time in my life. And honestly, like the things that got me back into school were my thesis advisor. And that was almost entirely the reason that I went back. Um, so I think it's really just having keystone people in your life, whether they be from school or family or, or, um, things like that, that are really the only reason I've made it through personally. Um, so I guess, um, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but <laughs> it's, uh, I think in terms of what the school has done that has helped a lot is, um, I've just managed to develop a really good relationship with my um, accessibility coordinator. And so she knows me well, we've worked together several times and then um, I've been able to really lean on her throughout my grad program to help me. Um, but outside of that, I feel like it's been really self-driven um, and there's not much that the school could have done, I think, that would have helped so it sounds it sounds almost like not the institution itself but the some people within the institution yeah. were extremely helpful did you have those people built in 
when accessibility was sort of giving you a hard time or was that more you at that point just knowing perhaps that you belong there um yeah so i've been to three different schools and they've had three very different approaches um so when i was at the school that that basically said you know you shouldn't you shouldn't come here it was um it was much more disheartening um and but I was luckily at a much healthier place in my life. So I was able to just be like, yes, I do. So screw you. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and kind of work around it. Um, and then by the time I was coming into uh, my later degrees, it was uh, like I knew in advance what I needed to set up. And um, so I'd right. get the accommodation set up early. I'd meet with like, get all my documentation signed so people are allowed to talk to my parents, for example, or whatever, if they considered me like to be acting sporadically or, or whatever you want to call it, um, and have that all set up in advance. So then when I went to teachers with my accommodation policies, um, they, if they tried to say no, I had a backbone in place behind me as well. So um, I'm pretty good at putting up my own fights now, but if needed, I have a good line of defense behind me. And I think um, that's kind of key to things for me right now because I've had to use it several times since I'm going into grad school. Um, I find grad school has been significantly more challenging with faculty than undergrad had been. Um, but yeah. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> Totally. And that's so that's so actually reflective of what comes up in the literature as well in terms of um, students citing both their friends, their family, and sometimes like departmental heads, their supervisors, etc, as being the sources of uh, the most support, especially with peers, a lot of literature suggests, you know, it's the first people that people will keep turning to students will keep turning to when in distress. And um, yeah, on the graduate level, there's a lot of literature as well as a lot of community feedback that you can hear easily in terms of how much the faculty supervisor graduate student relationship makes or breaks someone's entire graduate experience because you can have an explicitly or otherwise, you know, like demonstrably uh, like exploitative one, sometimes abusive one. Um, and, and that is an issue that manifests on the graduate level for sure across Canada and across U of T. Um, but, and as like, and as well, part of the problem becomes what are the safety mechanisms here? If they report something and they're one of so few students who work with that supervisor, how easily can the complaint get traced back to them? How much does this impact their funding or their ability to get any leeway or future inroads connections to other uh, people in, in this field that they want to break into that can sometimes be very small. Um, so when undergrads think about their organizing too, I think these are exactly some of the points that um, at least members of the MHPC Mental Health Policy Council at U of T tries to bring it consistently, you know, like we have unique challenges on the graduate level too that we really need to be attuned to. Certainly, and I think there's also that gender dynamic, right? Um, as a man, although I have a disability, I, I don't really have issues having direct confrontational conversations. I don't like to, but I can, certainly. <laughs> but there isn't, and I've had, you know, friends express it to me like like this. It's like, well, would you go out for a walk at two in the morning? And I'm like, oh yeah, of course. And they're like, no, I'd never do that. And they would use that analogy to explain how they're feeling about X, Y, and Z. Um, so I think we need to create more inclusive places where no matter what your gender, your orientation, whatever, you don't feel as though 
you're in danger of speaking out. Um, I'm in a school currently where, as a person who's a public policist, I have to be very careful with what I say, um, particularly when it comes to the Saskatchewan government, although federal government as well. Um, so, you know, a place like this for me is pretty cathartic. But I think we're all muzzled right now for whatever reason that is. And that's really not good to our mental health as well. So if you can find those supportive students or even supportive faculty like I have in my current program who are just the best, really, that's the first line of defense I think that we all should strive to have. Something that um, a, a senior graduate uh, level organizer, um, Ellie Attaker has mentioned as well, it's like a model worth, look, worth, worth looking into um, is uh, you know, the Black Faculty Working Group at the University of Toronto, um, just sort of off the record for folks here, uh, it is a group um, that is tied to historical trends of like more organizing against anti-Blackness and like of Black folks, even in institutions like U of T, sometimes especially in institutions like U of T. And essentially they get funding from the university, from admin and whoever, but uh, the handling of that is autonomous. It's a small pocket of funding to just support endeavors for that, that support black faculty, right? And, and, and black members of the community broadly. And then it's also a channel through which someone can go give a complaint and then it's more possible for that to be sort of escalated or kind of like you know, worked on in tandem with other and sometimes more senior faculty members, you know, like, like a more senior person who's experienced the same oppression obstacles as you can be like, can, I'll, let me help you handle that. Uh, or I have a playbook, actually, I've experienced this. Um, but also to some complaints can then become anonymized um, through that sort of channel as well, right? And then worked on without the primary person, especially if they're in a traumatized or otherwise super distressed state, like it just helps everyone be able to work on this with a bit more safety or distance or what have you. Um, and and if, if that's possible to set up, really that's part of what a student union should be able to have and do at the end of the day, right? A good student union or any student mental health advocacy group should be able to field and help work with concerns on a similar level, help anonymize when appropriate, help refer to resources. And I think that's part of the reason why you can, you can see uh, student autonomy uh, and student governance and generally governance at institutions as being such a key part of the mental health debate here. Could I push yeah. back on that comment a little bit or yeah. sorry? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say no in some ways with student governance particularly. So I think that's more built on what your institutional culture is like. Uh, for example, here at the U of S, uh, there is no such thing as a disability rep on either of those student bodies. Um, so that makes it even harder for you to fight for what you're trying to get done, particularly from an advocacy perspective. I think it's more about, at least in my experience, it is more about understanding that you're not always going to have that support. So how can you galvanize the people behind you? How can you build those relationships, say, within your particular department or what have you? Or how do you get connected with those people who've been, like you say, here for a long time? Uh, but I think it's not like you can always rely on the student union because oh, half the time you're yeah, more sure. concerned about uh, the fact they're getting paid 30 some thousand dollars a year and they can actually eat today. You know, I, sorry, to be clear, uh, in saying this is hypothetically and ideally what student unions should be or what they should be able to do, et cetera. That is, um, I, you know, to be clear, we should fight <clears throat> for a, like, um, grievance and accountability mechanisms mm -hmm. that don't have conflicts mm -hmm. of interest like student unions uh, and fight for them to have the capacity to, uh, to do something like that. 
because this might not be the reality right now for sure on the line i i heard different points in this discussion idea of like reporting and i I guess something i've been curious about um is there and somebody on the chat also brought up i think she had to leave but she brought up this idea of what happens when students you know just fall through the cracks so is there any type of reporting being done first so we can have statistics and say something like i don't know 30 percent of students you know didn't complete their undergrads or didn't get to complete their masters or what have you because of things like they were put on a, a leave policy and never were able to return or they just had hardships that pushed them out is there any type of reporting or being done like this at all um that you know of in the Canadian landscape. <laughs> the only thing I'm aware of is um, the provincial government keeps track of and the Advanced uh, Education and Labor Association or division uh, keeps track of leavers and graduates, um, but they don't keep track of reasons um, oh, okay. that I know of. Um, it's been a couple years since I've accessed it, but I, I highly doubt that's changed, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably the same in Saskatchewan. Um, they pro- I don't know if they would track reasons, but the one thing about Saskatchewan is um, it's a small province, small population, small government. So if you're getting access to that information, good on you, because getting things from government can be challenging, as we all know. Um, nothing I've heard of, like a wide survey or anything like that, has happened in Saskatchewan, I don't think. But I'd imagine it'd be for similar reasons across the board. Yeah, I, I figured, but I just <laughs> I wanted to be sure I wasn't missing out on That said, if you want to think about maybe a larger sample size, there probably is federal surveys out there, particularly with COVID-19, where you could extrapolate data um, about this sort of stuff. Because the federal government does a very good job of creating stats for its policies. They do a very good job of that. Like stats can? Yes, exactly. Um, getting access to stats can stuff I know is difficult, very difficult as a researcher, but if you were to go through some of the published reports that have come out, um, you know, if you, anyone with the research skills, certainly, or anyone with the drive, the time, and, you know, definitely the time, I'm sure you could extrapolate stuff out if you really want. Interesting. Interesting. That's what I would do, just because then it wouldn't just be an Ontario deal, right? You can say, well, based on the numbers, here's what's happening at a national average, and then you can point to all provinces and go, well, it may not be C, it may not be, uh, I don't know, Nova Scotia, but it is these problem areas and this is a trend, right? Right. If you have that trend, you can probably go to policymakers at Queen's Park or Regina or Parliament Hill and say, guys, here's the problems that we're seeing. These are the numbers. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking that um, like on being on both sides of this, of this, issue it's so complex because at the same time you want to be doing things that are going to help the students that are struggling right now and set up those things like Lucinda was saying like ideally this is how it should be it's not for many reasons right now but like can we get there as student organizers and mental health activists and on the other hand you want to push for more systemic change because you don't want to have to keep putting out these fires it's like you know balancing both um, but yeah. 
another thing too is have uh, the U of T students considered going to maybe not just mainstream media like the CBC or the larger networks, but I am certain that there are, you know, smaller publications like Candleland, for example, is the first one that comes to my mind. That is doing a lot of that reporting that the larger media sources pick up on too. So if there are real problems, you know, if you, may, if you create those connections within the media, it is a good way of getting the public consciousness focused on what you guys have to say. Right. Um, unfortunately, we are hooked up to the media. I mean, who hasn't been on their phone in the last um, a couple days doom scrolling because it's the best thing in the world to do. Um, but I think that is another option of ours, certainly. Of course, it's mind your P's and Q's, it's be respectful, talk like the professionals, talk, all that kind of stuff. But if you can seem polished, if you can bring that out, in most cases in Canada, that would work. Maybe not so in other parts of the world, but at least we have that opportunity here. That's a really good tip. <clears throat> Do you have any additional, an additional response to that? Or I have, I have personally one more question, either way. And I have one very last question. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Constanza, do you want to go first? Sure. First, last. Oh, oh we may have lost. Last, last one for me. Um, so, All Eats has an organization. Hello? Oh, is, is that working now? Yes. Okay, so sorry about that. Um, this Needs has an organization. I know at some point it was mentioned, I'm so sorry, I forgot by who, the avenue of the um, like Human Rights Commission, like, Mm -hmm. um, being an avenue for sort of the equivalent of, of suing, I guess, the mm -hmm. government that does needs provide support for a student looking to go down that avenue that may not have maybe other sort of support. They may not know how to navigate that. It's like a complex system in and of itself. Um, I don't, you know, I think, needs particularly i don't think we've done that before however there are other avenues to do that so if it's specifically disability related there are organizations that are larger than us that we are like that we are a member group of uh canadian uh, council of canadians with disabilities for example they have a very long history of advocating on behalf of disabled students but well, not students but people in general in the court system hmm. um so that's definitely one way to do that that's one way to go about that um again if you can get it's, it sounds like exploitation a little bit, but you could also possibly go to places like, you know, student unions as well. There's also the Arch Disability Law Center. They do that on the disability side as well. Um, so there are definitely avenues that you can consult uh, to maybe get a situation where you can get some backing behind you and some stuff built up behind you. Um, also, if it's particularly the mandated leave stuff, I would go through... The, uh, the Ontarians with Disabilities Act, I do believe, or something along those lines. And that policy, based on my reading of it and the research I've done, I'll admit I'm not a lawyer, but the research I've done, uh, that policy wouldn't pass mustard. It really wouldn't. Amazing. Thank you Maybe, so much. Did you have any follow-up to that? Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, I, that was pretty comprehensive, I thought. Um, thank you so much. Uh, I, I think my... My last question stems from a conversation with some mental health advocates uh, over in Quebec. At one point they briefly mentioned how 
the healthcare system and access to psychiatrists, mental health care professionals, as well as general healthcare professionals is fundamentally different on the post-secondary level because it's fundamentally different across the provincial level. Uh, and effectively, students, physicians, physicians in training, and, and probably regular ones as well, uh, psychiatrists, they're all assigned from like a mainstream pool by the government and given very specific hours. Uh, and you know, I don't know if this is a coincidence or not, right? Maybe, but maybe there is a causational relationship to look into here because wait times in Quebec are shorter by a margin, quite a margin, at least from what I know um, in comparison to, let's say at least the ones at U of T and, and the ones that I know of across Ontario. Uh, and maybe the accountability measures there in terms of reporting excessive wait times and working on that, maybe those are fundamentally different and more public as well as a result of this fundamental difference in how we organize and deliver healthcare in that province. So I guess my question here to everyone here and especially our wonderful, wonderful needs representatives uh, is, you know, do you think that there are fundamental differences like that in post-secondary policy, in healthcare funding and delivery organization, in, in just overall governance, who knows, um, between provinces and territories that contribute to really different access to services or, or, or other parts of this mental health conversation? Um, I do have an answer already, Katie, but I feel like I've taken up a ton of the air time. <laughs> do you want to go first? Uh, sure. I mean, I think um, in, in Nova Scotia, we do have this problem of an aging population and retiring doctors and um, not being able to replace them fast enough, particularly in rural areas. Um, so our wait times are quite high um, for that. And that's been a large political um, issue for the past several elections. Um, so people are looking at wait times and people are looking at those things. And that's definitely driving focus there that um, probably isn't present in other provinces as much. Um, I think also just with that um, lack of what we call like tier one, tier two care, they are um, pushing upward. And we're seeing like across Canada, there's been like a 76% increase in ED visits for mental health concerns for people below 24 um, and since 2006. So there's obviously a lot of um, variables at stake at the lower levels of care that are consistent across the country, but definitely probably have these interconnections in provinces, like for example, in Nova Scotia with our lack of, of doctors and things like that. Um, I assume similar things would be happening with university policy, but I'm not familiar with any myself. I don't know if you are, Brady. Right, so I can give you the political science, public policy view of the entire country in a lot of ways. So it'll, I'll try and answer your question in that way because I can't speak necessarily to how Saskatchewan's healthcare system functions 100% just because we've amalgamated into one health region uh, recently. I don't really know how that impacts things, but yes, there are wait times and there are certainly a lack of resources at the U of S and that's not the fault of the people who are there, I don't think. They're, in my experience, they've done great work in getting me back to where I need to be. That said, I do think there are vast differences in how each province looks at their healthcare system and looks at uh, how things are delivered and how things are funded, certainly. Uh, if we look at British Columbia, for example, versus in Alberta versus in Saskatchewan, right? There are very stark differences. Now, 
is that directed by government um, preferences? Is that directed by how much money is in the bank account? Is that directed by how big your population is and how spread out that is? And that's one thing we don't talk about a lot is Ontario and Quebec, for example, they're huge, you know, there's 10 and 8 million people in those provinces respectively, respectively, I should say. So could it be a situation where you have too big of a population spread out over too large of an area? Maybe. Um, in Saskatchewan, I can certainly say that it's one of the more expensive provinces to run just because if you've ever looked at us on a map, uh, we don't look that big, but we're huge in land, but we only have about 1.2 million people. Um, if you can imagine administering that much of a region uh, with two big cluster, like two big universities in the south that are about two and a half hours apart, uh, and then regional campuses kind of dotted throughout, that those costs uh, and those wait times, I'd imagine, and that resource allocation just gets a lot more thin. Um, and I think that's a Canada-wide problem, too. Uh, if we look at Atlantic Canada, maybe, Katie, you can speak to that. You know, when the government budget isn't doing so well, you know, you got to start making cuts somewhere. And what is the easiest stuff for people to cut? Well, you know, the traditional wisdom says that's generally social programs or, you know, some other things. It's kind of like those extra niceties that are nice to have, but we just can't necessarily afford right now. Um, and that's what you'd hear a lot in policy and definitely leftist circles and on the right, you'd call it balancing the budget. So I think that's how I look at this sort of thing. Very cool. Uh, I'm also recognizing it is various shades of late and tiring uh, for everybody. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us and sticking with us, literally everyone here and especially, especially our panelists uh, right now. Um, I suppose this is the end of our, our time together, but also uh, feel free to check out needs. Feel free to keep sharing uh, our stuff on social media um, and helping promo remaining events and um, Thank you so much, everyone, for giving us your time, for giving us your knowledge, and, and we're so, so, so looking forward. Yes, thank you, Frank. Um, that's cute, great. Uh, to the rest of, of this summit and beyond. Thanks so much for having us. It was great. Yeah, thanks for having thanks us. so much, guys. Perfect. Okay, uh, well, we'll take care. I guess i um, not sure how to exit this, but everybody soon. Maybe Very awkwardly. Very awkwardly. Take care, guys. Take care, everyone. Bye. <laughs> okay. Uh, just wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to stand to debrief with the team. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Here's what I think. I think if someone tries to Zoom bomb right now, I think we should just let them in. I think we should let them in too. Oh, you're muted.